Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, April the 14th, 2023. Thank God it's Friday, as the marketing folks uh, remind me. It's been quite a week, the kind of week where sometimes I've thought to myself, wouldn't it be fun to be a monk and go and live in a monastery, escape everything? Um, as so often in this show, that idea uh, has been thought of before, particularly by the great man himself, Bob Dylan, on his last album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. He has a magnificent song, My Own Version of You, in which he sings all through the summers into January. I have been visiting morgues and monasteries, looking for the necessary body parts, limbs and livers and brains and hearts. I'll bring someone to life. It's what I want to do. I want to create my own version of you. We all, of course, want to create our own version of ourselves, reinvent ourselves, go away to monasteries and rebuild ourselves as monks. And my guest today on the show did exactly that. Grant Lindsley has a new book out. It's a memoir of his efforts to become a monk. It's called, appropriately enough, brilliant title, Mediocre Monk. And uh, the Mediocre Monk is himself joining us from the heart of mediocre monkdom, Brooklyn, New York. Grant, congratulations. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be here. I'm not sure whether I should be congratulating you or com commiserating you with you. Is this a memoir of failure of your attempt to become a monk? Are you a better monk having failed to become one? I would say that in some ways it is a memoir of failure. I, I think it was a failure of a productive and healthy kind, however, in a lot of ways. The uh, type of failure primarily that I experienced was the failure of a certain fantasy that I went into this experience really gripping pretty tightly. And, and that fantasy was one of becoming a transcendent individual guru type and, you know, somebody who was self-sufficient and fully self-reliant and somebody, you know, who was kind of their own island. And I, I went in thinking that by living on the edge of, uh, of society and, and kind of pushing myself to the edge of, of the mind as well, I might be able to get there. And what I ended up discovering was something pretty different uh, in the end. We're all made up of, of weird parts. Uh, Dylan reminds us of that in the song. He, he, he writes and sings, I'll take the Scarface Pacino and the Godfather Brando mix it up in a tank and get a robot commando. You kind of have done the same thing. You're a, an ultimate Frisbee player. You're a world traveler. You're a former tech guy. Oddly enough, the book on Amazon, at least, is number one in Southeast Asia travel guides, number two in literary and religious travel guides, and number three in extreme sports. You have some odd pieces to yourself, Grant, don't you? Yeah, I suppose I do. I, I've never been uh, associated with the phrase robot commando, but I'll, I'll take it. I like it. Yeah, um, run with it. It's a good <laughs> phrase. Yeah, exactly. But I think you're right. Yeah, I, I definitely have, uh, you know, struggled when in job interviews to answer the question, like, what has your career trajectory been? And the answer has been, well, you know, pretty scattered and all over the place. I've 
been fortunate to be able to have the flexibility to try and experiment with a number of things. And, um, you know, in addition to some of the kind of necessary income generating corporate experience that I've had and, and sometimes liked, but often not, I've been able to also dedicate some time to, um, well, the monastery uh, for one, but also being a competitive and currently semi-professional ultimate Frisbee player as well. Yeah, it's quite an achievement. And to add to all that, uh, you even penned a, a public uh, resignation note, no, uh, letter to Google in the Washington Post uh, back in 2017. You talked about your experience at Google about them uh, promising people to do cool things that matter. And of course, your experience of Google was of doing very uncool things that didn't matter. Tell me a little bit about your life, Grant, a, a potted history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, spent 18 years there and started playing Ultimate Frisbee there, really started writing uh, when I was a, a young person, thanks to a couple teachers I had who well, you're really... still pretty young to me anyway. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I've, I've uh, lost enough hair that I've, I've embraced the shaved head now and got some, some gray whiskers. But uh, when I was, you know, in, in puberty... And for people really just listening it. on the podcast, um, not able to see Grant, he has that shaven Brooklyn look. Very <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I... Uh, let's see, I left to college in Minnesota, a small liberal arts school called Carleton College. And since then, it's been a, a number of experiments over the last decade. As I, as I said, some in, in the corporate world uh, and some, you know, in sports and, and some taking time away from, away from that life and trying to spend that time in the wilderness as much as possible. So some of that has been monastic periods of time and then others has been working for an outdoor school the National Outdoor Leadership School, it's, it's called, and that's been leading groups of teenagers in mountain expeditions for about a month at a time. And, and that's been a really valuable uh, thing as well. So, yeah, pretty, pretty scattered career. But uh, yeah. I, Ron, I don't want to make you uh, the symbol of your generation, but I wonder <laughs> you went to a top college, Carlton College, one of the top liberal arts places. You were promised, like so many of these kids coming out of college, you were promised everything. And as you discovered, you got nothing. I mean, do you think that the, shall we put it, the, the, the messaging to your generation has gone wrong? That you were promised all the answers and then you got out and you got a job at a place like Google, which everyone dreams of getting, and you discovered that it was empty, meaningless and frustrating? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the there is a benefit to praise and to painting the future as a really golden bright thing and like anything you know too much of a good thing can uh can be unhealthy and i think i certainly absorbed the idea that you know i was destined for great things and even more than great things maybe destined for kind of a constant meaningful sense of passion with whatever I did. And Google in a lot of ways felt like it could have been the crowning achievement of all that. I mean, it's harder to get a job at Google than it is to get into any of the top colleges in the US. And as, as soon as I got there or within about a month of getting there, I kind of realized, wait, like, this is it? This is my job? I am not yeah, you interested are a, in this a, culture? Something called a, 
a talent channels specialist, which is Googleese for being a mid-level bureaucrat, right? Yeah, exactly. Being a being a recruiter, somebody whose job more or less boiled down to uh, sending, you know, five total emails that were somewhat personalized, but more or less generic in an effort to shuffle software engineers primarily. From, did you get uh, the free, did you get the free sushi grant? Were you living in Oakland at the time? Were you going to the Google office or were you working from home? I was supposed to be in the office, but over the course of my two years there, I ended up transitioning to mostly remote. However, yes, the, the, the free food uh, and it's and the massage <laughs> and the bean bags and the, it's I bet real. they loved you as, as an ultimate, the ultimate, ultimate Frisbee player. I mean, I think a lot of what I brought and what was on my resume certainly spoke to whoever hired me, you know, I'm a good liberal arts college and had this sort of interesting experience of living in a monastery right beforehand and playing an ultimate Frisbee player with also some of the more generic kind of, uh, achievement oriented management consulting experience. So yeah, I checked a lot of the boxes and, and I, I hoped Google would, uh, would check the boxes for me, but obviously that wasn't the case. Do you think in all seriousness, Grant, that that kind of eclectic background, you just, you, you just finished another stint at a startup, that kind of eclectic background, the liberal arts education, the travel, the interest in uh, Buddhism and Southeast Asia, the, the sporting skills. Uh, does that bring value or might you have been better off at Carlton just studying coding and, 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 and working uh, as a coder at Google and made have made you happier? I don't think it would have made me happier. And I think that it does bring value, but the value is a little bit uh, harder to immediately define and in in my case, I think it wasn't it was less of a choice to uh, bring an eclectic or go into an eclectic background than it was just a variety of interests and being able to kind of take uh, a narrative and like a skill set and figure out ways to transfer it into a, a different environment. In uh, my own version of you, uh, Dylan saying I study Sanskrit and Arabic to improve my mind. I want to do things for the benefit of all mankind. I'm not sure if you studied Sanskrit and Arabic, but you went to Thailand and you went searching for wisdom uh, to, this uh, to this monastery. You have a particular interest in Theravada Buddhism, is that right? What drew you to this? Yeah, uh, the, the language that Theravada Buddhism and the Thai forest tradition within that school of Buddhism primarily looks at is Pali, which sounds quite similar in a lot of ways to Sanskrit. Um, it's the difference between like Dharma in, in uh, Sanskrit and Dhamma in Pali. Um, so the Pali canon is kind of the, the, the foundational Buddhist religious texts for Theravada Buddhism. And um, what drew me to it and what drew me to the Thai forest tradition in particular was that it felt extreme. The Theravada school and the Thai forest tradition are the most conservative within the most conservative within Buddhism. They follow the rules that the historical Buddha himself apparently set down over 2,500 years ago with little to no updates at all with modernity over. Um, so is this a sort of a, a hardcore asceticism uh, a living uh, in a in a in a in a cave, living on water and 
small amount of rice is that yeah that's the right basic idea that's right the monks you know follow follow 227 rules and they're sleeping on the ground and i lived in a cave for my last two months there and everybody eats just one meal a day and one bowl and the meal lasts about 15 minutes and you're you're fasting for the remaining you know 23 hours and change until your next meal so, so why were you a mediocre monk did you just did you not enjoy it? Did you not learn anything from it? Did you rebel? I learned a lot from it. I definitely did not enjoy parts of it. Uh, but it's not supposed to be for fun, Grant. Correct. It? I mean, it's, you it's... don't you don't live on water and a bit of rice for fun. It's not like uh, going to Disneyland. You're right. You're right. I, I was I wasn't going there for fun. I was I was going there to try and. Um, grieve a friend that i had lost i was going there to try and escape my uh life in the states and i was also going there because it frankly stroked my ego to feel like i was a bit of a badass and that i was living in a cave and doing this extreme thing um i bet there was no internet you couldn't you couldn't put what you were doing on social media no and i think that that was part of it that contributed to the idea that i was uh i was off the grid and and really kind of pushed to the limit physically and mentally and, and socially. It was, it was all very appealing to me at the time because uh, I, wanted, I wanted to escape and I wanted to feel like I was pushing myself to the edge. What about the, what you learned, the wisdom in, 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 the, um, in the Dylan song? Uh, he, he sang, they talk all night and they talk all day, not for a minute. Do I believe anything they say? Was there conversation there? Were you able to discuss uh, the, your search for answers or even to articulate your questions? I was, and that is some of the, the most valuable part. That said, at the monastery where I spent the majority of my time, solitude was, a, of course, a major part of the experience from around noon every day until 6 a.m. or so the next morning. I was completely alone out in the woods, uh, miles from anybody else. So I was alone often and, uh, and certainly learned a lot from, from that experience, but really being able to What did that. you learn about being alone? I mean, it's like being in solitary confinement in a prison. It is in a lot of ways. I think the, and, and I compare that, uh, the experience to solitary confinement, but some in the book, the, the primary difference of course, is that it was voluntary on my part. And, uh, and also that, you know, there, there's something nourishing um, about being in wilderness as well and in a, in a community that supports that solitude too. But I think one of the th primary things that I, that I learned and, and really struggled to learn over months was not to trust everything that I think. And so much of the time I spend in my own head uh, with an internal monologue that feels like it is correct and that every, you know, petty thought or desire or aversion is uh, something that I really should believe and really need to buy into. And slowly over the course of months, seeing just how repetitive it was and how actually maybe connected to something else like, like boredom or sadness, those, those thoughts were, I slowly began to distrust some of my thoughts more. And, and that could lead to a measure of contentment. Grant, we did another inter uh, show earlier this week with somebody else who who's, continues to live in Oakland. You used to live in Oakland. Uh, 
a writer called William Brewer, who now is a novelist. He has a book out, The Red Arrow, that he teaches at Stanford. It's a book about psychedelics and how it saved, helped, he claims at least, saved his life. He's looking for a kind of escape. You were looking for an escape in a, in a very different way. What, why are we all looking to escape? Or is why is your generation, and again, I'm not suggesting that you and Brewer are necessarily typical of your generation, but why is there this thirst, this appetite for escape? And did you learn was the ultimate lesson, as so often in these things, that there is no escape and that we should appreciate what we have? Yeah, I think that a... Uh, uh... Definitely a big part of what I learned is that the idea of escape that I went into the experience carrying was misguided and it really made myself made my journey a lot easier when I realized that, you know, escaping my job, escaping my relationships, escaping my phone, escaping the Internet, uh, escaping city life, all of those things did not mean that I could escape my own mind. And being able to escape my mind, uh, whether through psychedelics or through meditation um, or, or other means, I mean, for me, it's also exercise sometimes, uh, can be a really wonderful, relieving experience. And uh, I think that that could be why. I mean, we, we're so inundated. I certainly am so inundated with just stimuli all the time um, that being able to take being able to turn that off in some way and get a new perspective and also just access feelings instead of thoughts a little bit more can feel really rejuvenating and enlivening and grounding in a way that my life at least is is not really geared to give me you're just the latest in a long line of thinkers writers of one kind or another going to asia to discover or rediscover themselves Steve Jobs, of course, went to India. One always wonders about what the locals think of us. Uh, you spent some time in Thailand, the mountains of Thailand, which are very beautiful. Many Westerners go to Thailand for Southeast Asia, for sometimes for the sex, sometimes for the self-reflection. We've had a number of Westerners who have relocated to Thailand, sometimes for the drugs. Uh, what was your experience of the locals? Did you talk to them about either the, the monks or others about what you were up to? What did they think of you? Yeah, some. I'm, I mean, the monastery is not set up for a ton of socializing. Uh, that said, every monastery in the Thai forest tradition is run entirely on the donations and generosity of the people that surround that monastery. So where I was living in Ubon Ratchatani in this region in the northeast part of Thailand, the monastery where I was living was supported by a really small village of about 200 people. And I was able to learn some Thai, some Isan, as the, the dialect in that region is called. Um, but the main thing that I picked up from them and, and was just kind of surprised again and again by was the level of respect that the the Thai people had for the tradition um, of of the Thai forest tradition. There's there's an immense amount of pride within um, Thailand for having having birthed this tradition um, that was sort of reinvigorated in a lot of ways by a monk named Ajahn Shah in the in the 90s and before. 
that now has monasteries, you know, in England, in Australia, uh, in the U.S., even like all over the world. It's a tradition that has really captured um, the attention and, and the support of a lot of people. So uh, at times I felt unworthy of such respect and, and admiration. But, uh, you know, I could I could kind of rationalize it some by realizing this is less geared towards me uh, and more geared towards the tradition that, that I'm representing and and the the real sacrifice that it does take and the real kind of difficulty that it entails to live by all the rules that, that one does in, inside of a Thai forest tradition monastery. So it was, uh, in contrast with your experience of Google, it, it seems even if you were a mediocre monk, uh, it was a cool thing that mattered. How can we import, grant some of this wisdom without making complete fools of ourselves into our culture, our working culture, um, our non-working culture? What did you learn from your experience in trying to be a monk that can make America uh, a, a better, more meaningful place? I love that question. And I think my, the process of writing this book was really a process of me trying to answer that question. Um, because what I initially did that didn't work and was wrong was to try and take a lot of the wisdom and lessons that I had and try and spread them and try and talk about, you know, the human condition or like universal truths and, you know, try and kind of uh, teach or preach or, you know, spread the word as much as I could about, you know, what I had learned and, and what, uh, you know, what was wrong with our, with, with the society that I come from. And so the value that I really landed on was how do I take a lot of what I've learned and just apply it to myself, just apply it personally. And in my case, a lot of what I learned was that that ideal of being a, a, a man who stands alone you know, at the, at the top of a mountain and, and is kind of self-sufficient, self-reliant is, is a myth. And as much as I like the idea of, of being strong and being self-reliant in a lot of ways, I also have to admit and, and actually even embrace the fact that, I mean, I'm standing on somebody's shoulders no matter what I do. I, I, and, and I also prefer to be in close relationships. And actually that was something that I was coached into, um, against my will in a lot of ways by uh, one in particular senior monk who, who helped me realize that especially if you want to make the largely solitary monastic life work for you over, over a lifetime, the only way to do it is by developing friendships and by, by diving into community. And so I think in a lot of ways, being able to distrust a little bit of my mind and reopen myself to, uh, feeling the range of feelings that arise in any given day and any given life, and then also embrace community. Um, that feels like uh, an honoring of the experience and, and something that I can continue to learn from it. It's the ultimate irony is you only, the only way to discover community is living the solitary life. Uh, and of course, in America, the issue of the self-made self and, um, their ability to make something of themselves, the so-called American dream, is particularly relevant these days. We've had a number of shows about people trying to blow up what they call that myth. Did that help you also rethink the American dream and the mythology of the self-made man, perhaps particularly in a, in a white masculine sense? Absolutely. It, it absolutely did. I mean, I think about... Uh, 
the question of how much of anybody's success is due to luck or hard work. And one of the lessons that I certainly took away from my experience being alone and realizing just how deeply I depend on other people for so many things is that luck and privilege and fortune is just a hum plays a humongous role in, in uh, any success that I experience. So um, I think one of the difficulties and, and certainly one of the limitations of, of the idea of a self-made person and, and the American dream of kind of grabbing yourself by the bootstraps and, and lifting yourself up out of Yeah, it. the book was called Bootstrapped. Um, so it focuses exactly on that, this critique yeah. of bootstrapping. Exactly. And in, in, in my case, you know, what, what's limiting about that belief is that it removes the possibility of gratitude for all the things that have set uh, myself up for whatever success I experience. And, and gratitude, uh, I, I learned and also heard from other much more senior monks was, uh, in their words, kind of evidence of spiritual progression, being able to feel appreciation on a deep level for uh, other people and for circumstances that allow us to flourish. Is there an element of, and, and, and this is obviously the answer is yes, is there an element of privilege to what you did, the ability to go to Thailand, learn everything about yourself, realize that you're a mediocre monk and then come back to America? A lot of people in America, and you don't need me to tell you this, Grant, uh, can't afford to do this. And, and how do we help people who, who, who don't have the means, the privilege of doing what you did? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The answer is yes. There's a there's a level of privilege to be able to take six months away from away from work and be able to travel and and try something like this. Um, one of the things that, at least for the Thai forest tradition, that does make it more accessible to to some is that um, it it doesn't cost anything to go there. So if you can if you can get to a Thai forest tradition monastery. Um, as I said earlier, they are run entirely on donations and the generosity of, of other people. So uh, it's not a, a pay to participate um, situation. That said, being able to take the time and go, absolutely privileged. And it's a tough question to, to, to answer how to be able to give some of those opportunities to others. I mean, I think that maybe the Internet and, and being able to have access to people, to teachers, um, and, and I think also to stories um, in particular, which is part of why I wanted to write this book um, that give, give people some of the ideas and, and maybe lessons uh, of, of an experience like that can, can be there. But um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think a lot of the ability to have experiences like this comes down to relationships with people. And if you don't have access to relationships with these people, it can be pretty tough to, tough to find. Relationships, of course, are everything, finally, uh, Grant. In fact, you were introduced to me uh, by, uh, uh, by Isaac Saul, who was on the show uh, a few months ago. He has a new network called Tangle about uh, independent, nonpartisan politics newsletter. It's very good. And, and he wrote a great blurb about you. Uh, so perhaps you might repay the favor. What is it about Tangle and Isaac Saul that people should appreciate i mean there's a lot to appreciate about about isaac and about tangle i think as as a writer one of the specific things that i appreciate about him is just the sheer amount of quality output that he has 
on a weekly basis. So if you're signed up for the free newsletter, you're getting Monday through Thursday. And if you're paying, you're you're getting a Friday edition. And you should go and work there. Why don't you? I know you you just your your startup just ended. You should join him. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I we certainly talk about Tangle on a regular basis and talk about writing. And he was nice enough to 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 plug the book and and uh and review it early on. Um but he uh I think our relationship is is best as a frisbee teammates which we also oh are. he's on your frisbee, frisbee team well grant uh you are my favorite you are you get my um robot commando award of the day congratulations on the Thank book you. and on your ability to do what you've done and acknowledge that it was mediocre i think it's an important message an important book and you'll have to come back on the show thank you so much thank you andrew